Welcome to the Academy of Esports podcast. I'm your host, James O'Hagan. I'm here today with Marcus Howard. He is the president of the Tampa Association of Gaming. Marcus, thank you t- for taking so much time uh, to be with us on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation, James. This is a great podcast series, and I'm honored to be one of your guests. Thank you, and and I, I thank you for saying that because I've been following your work and your posts on LinkedIn. Uh, they're always uh, something that really draws my attention. They always bring about uh, quite a bit of information and some uh, interesting challenges, not just to esports, but the IT industry in general. And the thing that I've been following you and tracking you on for quite some time has been related to not just your involvement in esports, but also in, in blockchain. And blockchain is something that as much as I've read about it, and I'm not, I'm not some you know, I'm, I'm working on my doctorate in instructional technology myself. So blockchain to me feels like something I should be able to get and understand right out the gate. And we've had some back and forth uh, conversation over uh, chat uh, in the last couple of days just to try to give me uh, kind of a, a basic footing. But, you know, there's a lot of teachers, a lot of parents and maybe some even some scholar gamers who who have heard about blockchain, but don't really understand what it is that they're hearing about. Can you try to summarize blockchain in a way that's going to help a layperson like myself to really kind of grasp at least the basics of it? Sure. And, and I get that question a lot. So don't feel bad about not quite knowing what it is yet. And I think it's it overcomplicates itself or the, the ecosystem overcomplicates it. I think the easiest mm-hmm. way to understand is it's basically a fancy uh, database and loyalty program kind of meshed into one. Right. So just like a database has you, you use uh, um, three and a half floppy. You've used a database. You've used Excel to store data. It stores sure. information. And then it also the cryptocurrency portion of it is kind of, again, the fancy loyalty program. And the way I typically explain to people is it's almost exactly like the internet, but I, I see it as the natural and inevitable evolution of the internet. And the difference here is that this structure is encrypted, decentralized, and distributed by default, right? So if you look at traditional internet, kind of the client server model, you may be familiar mm-hmm. with, for example, if LinkedIn ever goes down, right? None of us have access to LinkedIn because all the data all the, the information, um, the service as a whole resides on LinkedIn servers, and then we use it as clients on our desktops or our mobile phones. But sure. with blockchain, because it's a distributed and decentralized network, if one node goes down, the rest of the app, the network can continue to operate because the code and the data is stored on every node. Every node meaning every user. That's that's right, and, and I'm using tech speak again, so let me backtrack. A node is a device. Sure. A node is a device, so that can be anything from from your desktop computer to your mobile phone to an Xbox. If it was running the software that operates the app, then it is technically mm-hmm. a node. So, uh, and and I sent you this question yesterday. If those of you, those of us who have watched or followed the HBO show Silicon Valley, uh, they they presented an idea called PiperNet, which sounds like where everybody kind of had the network in, on their phone. Right, that there, everybody had control over their data, complete and control over their data, and and there was no centralization. There wasn't any way for anybody to necessarily steal anybody's data because everybody had it, but it was all encrypted and secure. Is that kind of what we're talking about? That is. I've seen a couple of episodes. I'm still in the first season of of, uh, <laughs> of Silicon Valley, so you may hit me with a spoiler. There. Oh, I'm sorry about that. But, but it's okay. It's okay. I haven't watched in a couple of days. So I'm working probably too much. But exactly that what you explained, it's, it's where everyone, the best case scenario, everyone has control over their data. 
and the ability to grant permission or access to that data to individuals or businesses. And that's what we don't really have right now. A perfect, two perfect examples that come immediately to mind is, is the Equifax hack, right? 54% of Americans were affected by that because all of the data existed in one place on the centralized server and Equifax had control of that data, not us as end users whose information it actually, we actually own that information, but they had it and, and they took our ownership from us. And then the other example is Facebook, notorious with Cambridge uh, Analytica. They, our information, our use patterns, our, our demographic information, they sold without our permission overseas. Um, and and whatever you feel about the elections, uh, you know, in 2016, that had an impact on the elections. So what I see blockchain, um, the, one of the greatest benefits to business and society is really empowering the end user to take control over their data. So an example right now, even as I'm thinking about as you're talking, as you're talking about this, is one of the concerns that people have is, is TikTok and where does my data go and, and who is using it? If TikTok was a blockchain application, let's say, there wouldn't be necessarily, ha- there, would, there would be no way to have this, this fear, I guess. Exactly. Would it, would, it be ma- blockchain- would it be warranted? Sorry. Yeah, the, the way the blockchain works is it has a private key and a public key. The best way that I explain that is that the public key is like your mailbox to your house, right? Anybody oh, okay. can send Perfect. things to you. And then your private key is like the key that you hold to your front door. You're the only one who has access to that. So while anyone can send you things to your public key and you can go retrieve it using your private key, no one can get into your house without your private key, right? So if you imagine a network of apps where you're using that public key, private key pair to secure and authorize transactions, then because you're the only one who owns your private key, TikTok, if it was a blockchain app, would never have the ability to come get your information. Interesting. That's that that that's really interesting. Now, the caveat or the catch with that, though, is if you wh- whatever your private key is, if you lose it, then you lose access to your house, if you will. Yes, perfect example. Um, I bought about half a Bitcoin in 2014. I don't own a bunch of crypto. Actually, I don't own any crypto right now. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I day traded it over two or three weeks and tripled my investment. Um, and then that was around the same time right after that is when or, or that was right after I started uh, Project MQ. And over the course of the next two, three years, because I still had my day job, I was so busy that I couldn't keep up with the notifications from the, the crypto exchange that housed my crypto. Uh, mm-hmm. At some point, they they uh, deprecated support for the coin in the wallet I was using. They kept sending me notices saying, Warning, we're about to start charging you maintenance fees. You have nine months, six months, three months to make this change or we're going to start charging you fees. I never did that. So over the course of the next like year and a half, they feed away all of the, that $1,200. And then ultimately, I lost the key to that wallet. So even if it did have money in it, I have no access to it because I don't have the key. Oh, wow. So the, it, it's so I think it's important to say that blockchain, while it has a lot of promise, there's a great deal of digital responsibility also when when we're talking about this this isn't just like you know getting your login through facebook and then oh if i forget my password you're just going to email me another one because again that that creates a hole in the security that creates a hole in the encryption right there right exactly the same way they tell you not to set you know pass one two three four is your password right it may be convenient or it may even be convenient to share your passwords in between sites but mm-hmm. that convenience comes at at the price of security so additional security comes at the price of convenience. In, in this case, is additional responsibility. And now blockchain is trying to evolve to a point where, where they can give you like a, a socially distributed password where you and maybe your four or five closest friends and family 
uh, create the composite key, which is, is taking a larger item made up of smaller segments. And if mm -hmm. you happen to lose your password, you can basically make a request to your, your parents and, and your, your siblings. And together, when they respond to you, you can then reassemble your key and get your password back. That's kind of an evolving piece of technology. But before then, if you lost your password, you just lost whatever it was connected to. Sure. Now, uh, blockchain, of course, is more than Bitcoin. It's evolving. It's it's becoming. It's getting involved in other things. And I, I believe that there's also applications that you have started to uh, share with everybody uh, as far as you're posting ideas around blockchain and esports. Can you uh, kind of introduce us to that idea a little bit? Sure. Um, and, and one of those opportunities is with a company I advise, so shameless plug here is Game Credits. is the world's first gaming cryptocurrency it was created in 2014. They're creating a, an esports tournament platform on the blockchain so that they can verify that who's competing and, and if there are prizes, who has access to the prizes, if they won, if they're being matched fairly. Because again, the blockchain introduces mathematically introduces trust into untrusted networks. But I think the easiest thing for most people to, to wrap their heads around is if you think about traditional sports betting um, and then think about the gaming industry and the issue with like loot boxes and that whole issue around like skins uh, with like CSGO, right? You have potentially kids under the age of 18 gambling with loot mm. with skins that they got from loot boxes. If you could leverage the blockchain to verify mathematically that someone is of the appropriate age to gamble, you can immediately eliminate underage gambling wow that's kind of a that's kind of a big statement <laughs> it is. And, and that's a and that's a pretty powerful um idea is but it you know people may see a lot of this too and think is there overkill is there is there using blockchain inappropriately are we gonna are we gonna do maybe too much or is it is it appropriate for every instance say for example it's a great question and give a shout out to Samson Williams. Um, you know, he's a thought leader in the blockchain space and you can probably see some of his, his thoughts about the space on LinkedIn. He posts regularly and is active in the global community. His mm -hmm. joke is that, you know, blockchain isn't Frank's red hot. You can't put that on everything. Right. I don't know if it's <laughs> on your podcast. I don't know if it's a business later, but you can't put that bleep on everything. Uh, well, it, but you did talk about though, I mean, you can't put it on everything, but you have spoken specifically about how blockchain can be used to build a better community. And we know in esports that we have uh, a tremendous issue with our community. Um, you know, we're trying to fix that through education. Our scholastic esports scene, at least the high school level, is trying to do things where, you know, we're trying to build walled gardens to teach kids how to be good digital citizens. Uh, we're trying to work with uh, uh, our educators to make sure that they're aware of what is happening on the scene. Um, and you just, again, you described a perfect situation of using blockchain to eliminate gambling. How can blockchain build a better community? If we are teaching digital citizenship in these communities where kids will learn and fail, does blockchain A, protect kids in these digital spaces, and B, does it allow for teaching to occur? Again, who is the gatekeeper in all this? The gatekeeper ultimately becomes the community. That's one of the, it hasn't quite yet happened in the blockchain space, but I think that's, that's again, a best case ideal scenario is where we no longer rely on the U.S. dollar to represent all businesses and all communities. I'm not saying that the U.S. dollar will go away, and I, I firmly believe that fiat currency has its place in society. But 
I see blockchain evolving as a subset of micro communities. So maybe the esports community has an esports coin instead of everyone leveraging the US dollar, right? Um, you know, maybe the school that you teach at has its own coin. We're getting ready to roll forward with a um, triple, not triple A, that's the indie side of, of my brain. The NCAA, the NCAA, uh, one of the top ranking NCAA schools is a client for us in our new product that's going to be launching this fall. And one of the things we're going to be helping them do is introduce, introduce their own coin to represent their school community. So it, it helps you create that, that sense of loyalty amongst the members in the community. Whereas having a dollar, just using a dollar has no branding associated with it. There are no barriers to it. But if you have something that's confined within a community, then people naturally build an attachment to that community. And, and it's interesting, uh, you know, how people think, uh, and I think there, there was something you wrote, I don't know if you wrote or if it was in one of your videos, where, uh, you know, people, that, may, that idea, you know, Bitcoin may scare people, but that idea of just creating your own currency and how it exchanges between different groups may sound scary, but... You know, the United States currency has been off the gold standard since uh, Nixon was in office. And people wonder, where is the value of our money? Well, the value in our money is in the trust that we have. I think one of the best things I've seen recently about, you know, trust in currency and how fragile it can possibly be, be was an episode of Rick and Morty where he takes down the galactic government by turning the value of one of their currencies to zero of their currencies. And it was it was like because there's nothing backing it up. Just like with now, you know, it's faith and trust in the United States government that, that does this. It's just the currency is in a different medium at this point, right? No, I agree 100%. You know, it's a social contract. And again, I think that fiat currency serves a purpose in society. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think it will or ever should go away. But it, it's, like you said, it's just the full faith and trust of, of our global economy and our, our national economy that makes the dollar have the value that it does. Like just a perfect point you mentioned, you know, the gold standard was dropped in 1971. And right now, you know, there's counterfeiting happens across the board in, in, in every major market. So it's just us believing that the dollar has value is the only reason it has value. And if you saw the, you know, the link I sent you, I said, you know, Bitcoin is monopoly money. Yes, but mm -hmm. technically so is the U.S. dollar. Except the U.S. dollar could be counterfeited and Bitcoin cannot be counterfeited. That's right. That's that's one of the because great Because of the blockchain. Yeah, because it's on the blockchain. And it's funny, too, because a lot of people think there was a lot of propaganda early on 2016, 2017-ish, as soon as, especially when the that kind of purchasing spike where the price went up to like $20,000 per coin. Um, you know, governments were saying that that there's it's phony money and it and it's used to facilitate these illegal transactions, and that is true. But they say it in a vacuum, like that same thing doesn't apply to to the U.S. dollar. The difference is is that actually there is no anonymity in in Bitcoin, right? The guy who got arrested with the Silk Road, who created the mm -hmm. Silk Road, he got arrested because they were able to triangulate uh, his location in a, a library based on the track record of his his purchases and transactions on the blockchain. Because every transaction on Bitcoin tracks transaction on the blockchain since it launched in January 3rd, 2009 is all public information. Now with, with and I swear people who are watching this going, where does this come into esports? All right. <laughs> 
because you're you're pro- you know there's probably people who are going I wasn't this is the academy of esports I wasn't expecting you know a, a, an introduction to blockchain to this level but I I find it just so fascinating that it's one of these things that's just it's just tickling the part of my brain that's like I can feel that there's there's a there's a breakthrough there's a potential here with this that I haven't yet seen or discussed with you yet but you're also heavily involved in the indie gaming scene where does blockchain and the indie gaming scene start to coalesce, if you will? Another great question. So we had a design for our platform, which was pre-pivot, where we wanted to build an ecosystem that was completely gamified. And the reason we wanted to do that was to give indie developers something that they could spend of value as a substitute for cash in our ecosystem. Because most indie developers are small businesses. Most of them are bootstrapped. They have day jobs on nights and weekends they build their games. So they may not have money to pay for the display advertising or goods and services that you might expect someone like a, an EA or a Nintendo can pay for. So we wanted to reward them for creating their games in our ecosystem and sharing that creation process with our cryptocurrency that we would then allow them to spend on display advertisements and things of that nature where they otherwise could not afford it in cash, with cash. Mm. The same thing with gamers in our ecosystem. We wanted to reward them for discovering amazing indie games from around the world. We wanted to reward them with our cryptocurrency that they would then use to pay for skins and wallpapers and, and potentially even purchase full games with our cryptocurrency in lieu of cash, which, which is particularly you know valuable for someone who may be under the age of 18 who might not have a full-time job or any kind of job, they have an abundance of time but not an abundance of money. So if they're gonna be viewing media and and socializing, communicating anyway, why not reward them for that and give them something that they want using our currency they otherwise couldn't pay for with their own limited currency. See, now, now, see, I knew we were gonna get to this because again, my brain's getting tickled on all this, right? So, Here's what I'm thinking, right? What you just described isn't just for the developer, but it's for the gamer. And and one of the issues that we've got in esports is there are we know that there's more than League of Legends, Rocket League, Smash Brothers, and uh, uh, Overwatch. You know, there's a lot of games that again you go on Steam and you just you know you'll find them, but you don't necessarily know how they are. And again, you got to have money, or it's a demo. If if you're lucky, if, you know, if you can, they got a demo. But what you're talking about here, too, in a lot of ways, and I want to and I want to preface this first by saying I've spoken about how gamification can be overused, you know, because, again, you're taking something people want to say, oh, let's gamify esports. Don't esports is already intrinsically motivating. Don't gamify the thing that kids are already wanting to do. Gamify the things that they are hesitant to do. And what you're saying is let's gamify the research and the finding of these titles by kids or anybody, mm-hmm. but find these titles, gamify that so that then they can, again, ha- instead of having to um, pay to play, if you will, necessarily, they're still able to, in ways, earn currency through play to extend their gaming experience, if you will. Am I, am I, am I getting that right? Exactly. And so what it does as well is it it then creates that loyalty, again, blockchain and Bitcoin, uh, cryptocurrency is a fancy loyalty program. It establishes that loyalty between a gamer and now the game developer because they now have the ability to go spend this currency that they've built for the purposes of building a community, right? Being a part of the developer's audience, follow that developer's journey from 
the back of the napkin to the gold release, right, into the steam cell afterwards, where right now they don't currently have that incentive to do so. So they're defaulting to whatever they think is cool based on whichever company can afford to pay Ninja to stream the game. And what's great about this too, again, the we're coming into such unconventional times in education and we're coming into unconventional times in scholastic esports as well, where, uh, again, my school district where, uh, not all of my kids have access to gaming PCs at home. A lot of them have unreliable internet. We're looking at ways we can bring in different titles that are maybe going to be, uh, more equitably accessible to kids. We're trying to find ways that we can be synchronous and asynchronous. And what you're describing for me is an opportunity for kids to find those titles. And while there is that extrinsic motivation to find a game or a title that they love and really start to develop their own esports ecosystem around that title and share it and produce it and, and, and give it to other kids and say, hey, we need to build something around this. It's kind of a, you know, again, we're taking this, this, this awful instance here and potentially finding ways that, again, I think Scholastic Esports is one of the most misunderstood segments of the gaming sphere. You know, people seem to think we want to be a pipeline to the pros and we don't want to be a pipeline to the pros. We want to develop kids who want to be coaches and game developers and IT, but also develop tournaments and develop their own rule sets so we don't have to do all the work because those kids have that love and that passion. I see such tremendous power for this potentially for the indie gaming scene. Exactly. Imagine if at your school you could create an incentive program for students, you know, having good attendance and getting good grades where they can then earn this cryptocurrency. And if you had the network of indie games, they can spend that currency to redeem free games. Right. Just for being good students at school. It's like the best way I can equate it to is is uh, the Book It program for Pizza Hut. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but, but when I was in grade school, elementary school, they had a program, and I think they actually still run this program, where if you went and read a number of, of books off of the approved reading list, which was a partnership mm-hmm. between Pizza Hut and your local school, you would get a star. And every time, it wasn't just an empty participation award star, right? Every time you collected a certain number of these stars, you could go to Pizza Hut and redeem it for a free pizza. And then enough, enough students in your class did that same thing. Now your entire class wins a free pizza party sponsored by Pizza Hut. Mm-hmm. It, it boosted literacy, uh, you know, through the roof for for the under, you know, the K through twelve program. The the only catch, and I guess the only difference that I see, and it's important to say because I've spoken about this as well too, is, um, you know, libraries do this typically during the summer. They'll have some kind of a partnership program where they say, "Hey, read five or seven books this summer." And uh, you'll you'll earn, you know, put your name in a on a raffle. The problem with it was, again, looking at it through the lens of self-determination theory, you've got kids who are already reading. And when you start to put extrinsic motivations on things that they already love to do, you can actually start to shift their intrinsic love towards an extrinsic uh, motivation, which, again, will they'll they'll see that they only have to read seven and maybe they'll only read seven. But where I see the big difference in this right now is. A lot of kids are stuck on those four big titles, four or five or six, you know, Call of Duty, uh, Rainbow Six. You know, they've got this amazing library in front of them and kids are focused on the, you know, four or six titles that are currently what we would consider, um, you know, esports sanctionable, if you will. You know, the, the developers have put a lot of money and effort in behind these. But, you know, I think, too, around 
you know, the experience like uh, Jay Collins, who I've interviewed several times on the podcast before at Hathaway Brown with an all girls school where they started to look at all the traditional titles and the girls said, you know, this may work well for the pro scene or whatever, but this doesn't work for us. We need to find something else. And they went out and found those different titles that were going to work for their competitive structure and building it in Cleveland, out, in and around Cleveland, Ohio. Again, what you're talking about isn't, a, is again, you're talking about taking that amazing library that's potentially out there that nobody's read or very few people have read and saying, let's use this tool, this ability to incentivize finding these different games because kids love to play. They love to find new games. They like to be the first one to play something. Hey, let's, let's incentivize all this. I think again, it, 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 it sounds, it sounds fantastic, especially now. Am I getting this all right? Am I, am I figuring this all? Am I putting this all together? Yeah. You're, you're very close to where our pivots going with our new company. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> no, and it's cool. It's cool. We're, we're going to make it a, a, you know, a major announcement, hopefully later this month now that we're in August. But what we noticed is that, you know, Rocket League and League of Legends and Minecraft and Clash of Clans and PUBG and, and um, what's that other game? Brawlhalla. Those are all technically started by indie studios. Smite also technically started by indie studios or, or created by studios that were formerly indie and then went mainstream as a result of their popularity. And people mm -hmm. play the crap out of those games because they're cool games, not because they happen to be like the most popular, you know, mainstream game. They just happen to have fun gameplay experiences. So our philosophy is we can continue to curate games of that quality, that caliber, but create, widen the scope. So it's not just shooters and it's not just uh, Madden. It's not just Rocket League that we could incentivize everyone on within a, a given uh, educational community to engage in this activity, right? If you had a racing game and a fishing game and a puzzle game and a, a fighting game, you know, even if you, you could potentially even shift, fully shift away from shooting games, which is what our approach is, because we don't need them. If 75% of the games, PC games, or games on the PC market, most likely the global market, are made by independent game developers, and if, if Brawlhalla and Rocket League can be successful, we can build an entire catalog of games that will engage the entire student community and never have to introduce a shooting game. That is a pretty powerful statement. That is, and that's, and I know that there's a lot of, of people. I, I'm one of those who look at Overwatch and go, eh, it's comical. You know, it's 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 derivative. It's it's nothing. I mean, it, it's a derivative of all the other games we've played. You know, like you know, Call of Duty and you know, Rainbow and all those. But it's it, it's it, it's it's made to look safe. And what you're saying is to heck with that. There is so much great stuff out there. Let's just avoid. We don't need that all together when there's such a fantastic uh, library of potential uh, titles that are already out there. And again, incentivizing it just so that the developers continue to develop and the gamers continue to seek them out and find these new titles. You're right. And I think... You know, and I definitely have to make sure I say this. I don't think this. I know this. That there is no research that that concludes that violent games lead to school shootings. And actually, the right. research is saying quite the opposite. So whenever I have these conversations, I make sure to say that. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't play violent games because they cause school shootings. No research indicates that. Mm -hmm. However, the public perception is that violent games lead to school shootings, and to that extent, parents don't want their students introduced or their kids introduced to that kind of experience 
And then by extension, brands don't want to be associated with games that they're that the parents who have the money don't want their students or kids associated with. So I believe if we expand outside of the shooting demographic, you create a content experiences that are more relevant to specific businesses like like real estate companies and, and skateboard shops and and manufacturing companies. But you also create an environment where those companies feel comfortable putting their brand and their brand dollars into the ecosystem. And you've probably seen me me, you know, go on vents and, and soapboxes back and forth about how I see esports right now as a bubble. That's part of the reason. It's right. If unless you're MasterCard or or you know Apple and, and someone of that caliber, you can't really, as a brand, as a small, as a business, you can't really get into the esports space because it doesn't make sense. It's not on brand for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The two two things you said there, uh, you know, about the violence in video games. You know, uh, I had uh, uh, Dr. Chris Ferguson and uh, Dr. Rachel Cohort, who are both uh, research psychologists, who spoke about that. And in fact, you know, as over the years, as um, you know. Uh, gun violence has has actually dropped in this country to some of the lowest, you know, vi- teen violence and has dropped to some of the lowest levels while video game play has gone through the roof. Uh, you know, so there's there's this there's almost these these competing graphs that show, you know, completely opposite um, growth and decline. But the other thing you said, too, and gosh, now I'm 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 sorry. Oh, no. Uh, the other thing you said, too, is, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot is what can we do for elementary school kids? What can we do for middle school kids? And I don't want to give them Overwatch, you know, even though they may say, and right now it's like, well, here's Minecraft and here's Rocket League. And that's about it, you know, that's about it, right? and and we do need incentives because, again, these, these are places where kids are learning to play, starting to play. And they're picking up things again. They're, they're, you've got some elementary school and middle school kids who are stepping onto gaming platforms where there's 18, you know, 18 year olds, 20 year olds, young men, you know men and women uh, um, and it, it it me as a as a parent it makes me a little uncomfortable to think you know how do we introduce an elementary school child or a middle school child to a title they say boy i really want to play it let's find them other titles that inspire them or lead them to eventually being able to be old enough and mature enough to exist in those spaces and 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 have fun gaming experiences and learn along the way how to be good digital citizens while doing it I agree 100%. And, and again, what we're trying to do in the higher, what we're going to do in, in the higher ed space is use video games and blockchain to fundamentally redefine both the educational and the, the social experience at a university. And that's what we believe is, is unique to our product that doesn't exist across any of the other ecosystems, really at, at the higher ed or the K-12 space, is because we know we have a the connections across the industry because we've been in this space for seven years with our previous business and our mm-hmm. fundamental understanding of blockchain and, and how that can again re reimagine the student experience, the social experience, the connection between the universities and, and the communities surrounding it. And then not just saying that that when you're talking about professional esports, you're looking at either competitive play or live streaming. To your point earlier, there's broadcast, there's writing. Um, there's there's game development. What I, I see commonly in the esports space is most people, yourself excluded, but many people in the space only really understand the gaming industry right at the point where they're playing the game for money or a prize mm-hmm. or they're live streaming it. They're missing all of that pre-production and all of that infrastructure. 
that's not sports related? Well, because again, this is where I think scholastic esports is very misunderstood by the professional. Even, you know, let's take Riot Games, for example. I've spoken out tremendously about their community guidelines because their community guidelines are so, they, they lumped high school and collegiate together. And, 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 I, and I tried to make the case to them so many times, whether direct conversation or through the open letter, it was saying you need to separate the high school space from the collegiate space because just because they're both schools doesn't mean that they have the same end goals. We are trying to, at the high school level, use esports as an educational tool to engage children and redefine athletic culture and promote good health and wellness. We're not trying to, again, get these kids to a pro scene. And, and, and again, colleges are using it as a recruiting tool and a retention tool. They're using it to try to get kids to come to their school and be part of their school and, and give their kids something to, while it sounds like what we're trying to do in high school, you know, high school still is compulsory. College is not. So, um, you know, we, we, we're trying to do it in those different ways. And I, I really believe that, yes, we, you know, you alluded to earlier that there is an esports bubble. And I really believe that it's there. You know, you see you know, I spoke. I speak out against the rush to implementation in Scholastic esports. There is a rush to implement pro esports at all facets. All good people. I mean, people who I really like are getting into it now. Who who you look at and go, why, why are you doing this? But what what do you hope to gain out of it? What what is your investment in this? And um, I, I believe that when the bubble does burst. Because I believe that it will, whether it's when there's a cure for COVID or some other event happens. I mean, all the dirty laundry right now is coming out about esports. People can't keep turning a blind eye to it and blind eye right. to it. But scholastic esports is still going to be there. And we're going to need systems like this. And we're going to need indie developers to who who want an audience that can help uh, not just grow their game, but you know, even inspire some kids to say, you know what? I found out from this developer that they did this entire game all by themselves. And I feel like either a, I can work with them to help make it better or B I can make a derivative that, you know, you know, maybe now they become the developer in this case too, in some instances. Yeah. So, and I think any developers would love that opportunity. And, and again, that's, that's one of the things that we're banking on again, having worked with them for seven years, they're bootstrap companies. They're, they're short on finances. They're short on, on talent. So an intern, especially if it's a younger student who may be more, more uh, motivated by the experience of being a part of a game development team than the actual pay, mm-hmm. I think it's a win-win scenario. And I've also had the, the personal experience of getting things done much more quickly with indie studios than with their AAA counterparts. And, and nothing generally against AAA studios, but most of them are publicly traded companies and they have that infrastructure that you would expect from a publicly traded company. So that there, there's red tape and there's delays and there's all these levels of approval. And mm-hmm. I, what I learned in the last seven years again is that I could just you know send a message to somebody I know that we've, we had in our community and either that's the person that can make the decision or they're sitting next to the person who can make the decision. And you, you said too that the, the system, the ecosystem that you all are developing around indie games and blockchain and, and, and the currency, that's still in development, right? You're still working through all of that. So nothing is released yet. We're not, somebody hasn't missed out on this quite yet. We're, you're still in the development phase right now of this idea, right? Exactly. We have a, a global beta. It actually may end up being a national beta since, since I still have my full-time job, right? And I can't be in, in uh, 10, 20 time zones at once, which is something I learned in our last company. 
But what we're looking to, <laughs> I was up at 3 a.m., you know, answering, you know, Twitter messages and, and schedule. Oh, no. But what, what we're doing is we're introducing this to the schools so that they can have something that's a shared social experience for the entire student community. And then educating the faculty and staff, again, how to embed esports and gaming as kind of the, the carrot of STEAM to introduce students to the rest of what STEAM has to offer. So we've got our first school, again, a top-ranked NCAA school. Hopefully we'll be announcing that next week or the week after. And then we're going to open up that program to about 20 to 40 schools. The private beta is going to launch late this fall, roughly late October, mid-November. And then the public beta will launch at the Super Bowl next year when it comes here to Tampa Bay. Very cool. And again, uh, all the work that you've been doing, again, you are a tremendous follow on LinkedIn. I I love seeing what you post. I love to see how you use data to openly challenge. Let me ask you this, um, because I know that there may be some uh, administrators who may, especially high school, elementary, middle school administrators who may be nervous about this. Um, with blockchain, you know, what is the, I guess, you know, again, we, we have to usually follow these terms of service, whether with a child, you know, under 13 or whatever. Are, are there going to be issues around, I guess, accounts or, or do we still have to follow the same security protocol when it comes to kids and blockchain or because everything is everything is ledgered, everything is marked, everything that are all transactions, whether they're actual financial or something that exists in the database, database is it going to make it an, a school administrator's job easier in this environment you're describing or is it going to be we still have to do this have the same protections and the same mindset of of fidelity and uh taking a fiduciary responsibility with our towards our kids both you still need that responsibility but the responsibility comes in on the front end so the way that it works is when you create a new network um, you have basically stakeholders which may be the, the school system it might be parents and let's say it's the state government right Mm-hmm. All of you collectively agree to a, a set of basically terms and conditions about how the system will operate. So you might agree that that the parent has a sign of the student and that the parent automatically gets access to all of the student's records or whatever the transactions are in the system. And then once that is established, it gets locked into the code base and it's permanent unless the collective group decides and votes to change or amend anything that's happening as a rule for that network. So if you put these safeguards and all of these these levels of approval in on the front end, they happen automatically uh, through through a concept called smart contracts. So, for example, I don't know if you remember, I think this was like two years ago. There was a E. coli scare with lettuce in Walmart. Sure. I can't. I think it was E. coli. Uh, I think that process normally takes Walmart to like three to four weeks, if not a couple of months to trace the the um, the supply chain, if you will, from the store that had the actual contaminated lettuce all the way back to the farm. Because they had this system, the lettuce tracked on blockchain, they were able to do it within like a matter of, of hours. They turned a multi-week process because of smart contracts into a matter of hours to, to trace all the channels from source to, to endpoint of where this lettuce was. And to an, to an educator who may still be listening to this or a parent who may go, 
boy, this sounds really complicated. This sounds too hard. You know, we have to think back that uh, 20 years ago when I started teaching, I was given a red book to put all my students' grades in. I was given, and in that same red book, I was to include all of my lesson plans and everything. And now we've gone to a system where parents can get access to student grades 24 seven, uh, you know, uh, teacher lessons can be posted up into Google Classroom videos. I mean, th there's a lot of complex, and again, it sound 20 years ago, all of what we're doing today in education sounds very complex. What you're describing to some people may think like, oh gosh, this system sounds so complex, but it's people like you, Marcus, who are developing ways to do it so that I'm not saying turnkey, but will be in a way to, if I'm understanding right, uh, help us to make that transition, make that shift to this more secure environment that hopefully you are, are work and several other people are starting to build. And that's the goal for a lot of the thought leaders in the space is how do we remove the friction and the complexity, mm -hmm. uh, both perceived and, and implemented in using blockchain. Again, this is best case scenario. In the future, you shouldn't even know that an app is running on the blockchain. You should just be able to enjoy the benefits of it. Again, having um, control over your data, the, the ability to grant permissions as you see fit, remove those permissions when you no longer want those granted, and, and not have your information be subject to hacks and, and misuse by the organization whose app you're using, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, perfect example is, is the internet, right? You know, 20 years ago, it, it was a big deal and very complicated. 20 years later, you know, today, most people don't understand how the internet works. And ultimately, it doesn't matter how it works. As long as when you and I get on this app, it, it functions. You don't really care how it happens. So that's, mm -hmm. that's where I want blockchain to get to, where it's so intuitive that you're just using a regular app and it just happens to be powered by blockchain that gives you all the extra benefits. Just like, you know, web games are now just games and mobile games, technically still mobile games, but, but you know, it needs to get to a point where mobile games are just games, just like console games are just games. So blockchain games will just be another game that happens to have all of these extra benefits to it. The, the, the what you described, I hope when people, uh, you know, download this podcast episode in 20 years, you know, and, and, and you and I are much older, uh, they they look at this and go, oh, what they were describing. Well, that's just matter of fact. You know, that's just that's just how it is. You know, of course, of course, it's that way. Why would it be any different? Um, Marcus, if people want to learn more about you or about the work that you're doing, uh, where can they best find you? And, and uh, other than I'm going to recommend highly that they follow you on LinkedIn, but where else can they find uh, information about the work that you do or the organization? You talked earlier about the Tampa Association for Gaming. Uh, where else can they find more about you? Probably just LinkedIn. That's a great first recommendation. I'm on Facebook, um, Marcus Esports Howard, just like Marcus Esports Howard on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, there are two of me. I have an identical twin brother. I have a, a medium blog that I haven't had, haven't made time to update in about six months or more. So don't go there. But if you do, it's a good read from the last few times that I did update it. But mostly just LinkedIn. You can also email me directly, Marcus at projectmq.com. Again, we're in the middle of a rebrand. So maybe here in the next four weeks, while we may still, I may still have that email address and forward it to the new domain. I'm shifting mm -hmm. away from Project MQ because it's, it's an idea whose time has come. I do have one more thing to ask you because um, 
I think this was a, a really important part of your story too. And I'm sorry I didn't bring it up at the beginning, but I think it's important. We can close with this too, because you did talk about your identical twin brother. What was the first game that you guys played together? Because I thought it was a very important story that you shared in a video that you sent me. So what was that first game that you all played? Super Mario Brothers 3 on the NES. Yeah. And it inspired a little technology for us. And in the ninth grade, it actually inspired us to start building our first indie video game on the TI-83 Plus graphing calculator. It, it, you know, when you were telling that story, uh, I remembered I had the TI-83 as well when I was in college. And uh, they allowed us for the first time to use that calculator in college. As uh, and, and so what I taught myself to do for the calculus class was how to program it so that I could do all of my, pro my, my calculus equations using the program. Second semester, they said, oh, by the way, that, cal that calculator thing we told you to use, we're taking that away now. You kind of had a similar experience with your TI-83 as well too, right? That's right. It's funny because, you know, we were in magnet school and, and I think my parents were for pushing us, and, you know, for our, our educational limits to, to do more and be more because certainly we didn't have the, the motivation ourselves. And, and now I do, but I, I didn't as, as a 16-year-old, 15-year-old. But they, at that program, that first year, they were trying, the school, which for the magnet school program, was trying to teach us to learn coding to build websites. And Malcolm and I had zero interest in learning how to code for the purpose of building websites. But as mm -hmm. soon as we learned, like literally the day after we learned that you could put video games on the calculator and that those games are made with code, we both started diving into code because we wanted to build our own game. Right. Sure. Uh, and, and unfortunately for us and the rest of the class, we taught everyone else how to install games on their calculators. So our, our trigonometry teacher is, is teaching on the whiteboard. She turns around and no one's paying attention because we're all playing like drug wars and Tetris and a little Mario clone. So while we were all at lunch, she went by each of our calculators and wiped the memory to wipe the games. But it also destroyed oh. our game because it was stored in the memory on the calculator. Oh, that's so brutal. But. You know, again, it, it's it's amazing where these instances come from, where these inspirations come from. And Marcus, it sounds like you are looking to, again, build another generation of inspired gamers, gamers who are going to help developers and developers who are going to inspire gamers, vice versa, uh, through your work with blockchain, through your work with indie games. Uh, Marcus, Howard, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Academy of Esports podcast. Thank you as well. This has been awesome. That will do it for this week on the Academy of Esports. I've been your host, James O'Hagan. Esports are organized competitive video games allowing schools to redefine their athletic culture, diversify opportunities for student participation, promote good physical and mental health, increase collegiate scholarship pathways, and play games. We can never forget the importance of play. The mission of the Academy of Esports is to support these ideals. The vision of the Academy of Esports is for all students to experience the fun and joy of playing competitive video games. You may follow me on Twitter at Jim O'Hagan. That's at J-I-M-O-H-A-G-A-N and through the Academy of Esports account at T-A-O Esports. It's a great way to get the latest blog posts, podcast episodes, and news coming out of esports and education. And remember, you can continue your engagement by going to www.taoesports.com. You can also connect through Facebook at www.facebook.com slash 
T-A-O Esports. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to our time again next week.